This past March, there was a headline in USA Today that read, Woman wins $10,000 for reading the fine print on her insurance policy. And the story was just that. The woman was a school teacher from Georgia. Her name was uh, Donalyn Andrews, and she was a detail person. She always told her students, don't sign anything you haven't read, and she didn't either. And so she got a new insurance policy. She was reading through it. She got to the real small print, the part that most of us would just go, okay, and sign. And she read and read and read, and she got to a point that said, congratulations on reading this far. And it told her that the first person to read this and call a particular number would win a $10,000 prize. She did, and she won it, and she and her husband used the money to take an anniversary trip to Scotland. What a wonderful story. Being rewarded for reading the fine print. I find in my life the opposite usually happens. I am penalized for not reading the fine print. Am I right? Anyone else here? Anyone else when they were 12 flipping through a magazine and see a two-page spread with all these album covers? And a little headline at the top, 12 hot hits for one cool penny. I can get 12 tapes, that's right, tapes, for one, actually, when you read further, it's 11 tapes for a penny and one for free, which is the better deal, I don't know. And, and I, I immediately cut out the little coupon, didn't ask my parents, oh, I don't need, this is a, too good to pass up, filled in my name, filled in my address, taped the penny to it, naturally, dropped it in the mail, my tapes arrived, they were terrible, the music quality was bad, um, hey, it was only a penny. Then, every month, another tape would arrive, along with an invoice for something like 14, 16 bucks. And I called, I said, I don't want these anymore. They said, I'm sorry, when you signed that thing and sent it in, you agreed every month for whatever, two years, to buy a tape from us. There was an asterisk, and there was a tiny little statement at the bottom explaining that. Well, in this passage... We have some people trying to pull that kind of scam. By the way, that Columbia Record Company thing uh, has been taken down. You can't do that anymore. It's, it's now illegal because it's not ethical. But all the same, we have some in the church trying to do the same thing. Oh, you signed up for this thing. Seemed like a really good deal. You came into the church by grace through faith. Awesome. Asterisk. Look down at the tiny little writing there. It's not quite enough to save you. There's something more that is needed for you to really be considered a Christian. What's going on here in Acts? We're now halfway through the book, and we'll be more than halfway by the end of worship today. The gospel has now been unleashed on the Gentile world. It's well established in Antioch and the surrounding areas. It's all through Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and word spreads far and wide that the Apostle Paul is bringing the good news of Jesus all around the whole Roman world, and despite setbacks and different kinds of persecution, the Gentiles are now coming to Christ in droves, and the church, most of the church, celebrates. They're ecstatic. Yes, Jesus is being honored. This is marvelous. This is wonderful. But one little faction, the Pharisaical faction, doesn't like it. And I'm not, this is not like biblical shade, right? I'm not calling them Pharisees. They're calling themselves Pharisees. We're the Pharisee sect of Christianity. Can you imagine that now? Like first Pharisee church? 
I've been to that church. They just don't call it that. Right? But they, there was this, this group, they still associated with their old identity in the Pharisaical, which, I mean, Pharisaical Judaism wasn't bad. It was standard mainline Judaism. And these people were saying, we have customs. We have things that we do, and they're not being done anymore. Seems they may have been okay welcoming Gentiles in when they were a small minority. They, they made a little objection at the beginning of chapter 11, but they were like, yeah, all right. They, were, they, they kind of backed off. But now the Gentiles are starting to outnumber the Jews quite a bit. And like Pharaoh saying, oh, I don't like this. We've got to do something about this. They're beginning to panic because the identity of the group is shifting. From their point of view, the identity is being watered down. Right? What about our culture and heritage? They associate one culture with Christianity and different cultures are now coming in. The flag that would be there in the sanctuary if they had one is a different flag than what they're used to see flying. That makes them feel weird inside. That makes them get kind of defensive and they begin to push back. Now they know once that cat is out of the bag, you can't put it back in. The gospel's out there. It's, it's doing its thing. Have you ever tried to put a cat back in a bag? I'm not going to tell you why, but I have. You fail, and you get, your arms get shredded in the bad way, not in the good way. They know they can't do it. And so they go into damage control mode. And they start to teach. And they go around town to town teaching this thing. We can, we can bring it back in. We can save our, our cultural version of Christianity. And we're told twice by Luke exactly what they were teaching. In verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Again, in verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to, to keep the law of Moses. It had to do with keeping the law and keeping it the way the Pharisees had always kept it. These guys seem to have implied as they went around that they were sent by the leadership in Jerusalem, which was not the case. What they're doing here is a very human reaction. It really is. To say, wait a minute, you're not doing it the right way because you're not doing it my way, therefore I need to come in and correct you. You haven't asked me to, but I'm going to. Peter, who's going to show up here on the other side of the equation, he did the same thing. He and the other apostles, right? We saw someone casting out demons in your name, Lord. And hey, pat on the back to us. Tip of the ball cap, we, we told them to stop because they did not follow after us. They weren't part of our group. So we said, get the name of Jesus out of your mouth. The difference is that Peter was there and he remembers how Jesus responded. He rebuked them. He said, don't hinder them. For whoever is not against us is for us. So these, these Gentile Christians who don't follow our rules and don't, don't do things our way, they were making these Pharisees nervous, but they didn't recognize that God was doing a new thing and it transcended culture and national heritage and language and, and all of these things. But they wanted to come in and add, add the asterisk. After the fact, there's going to be tapes coming every week, guys, and you're going to buy them. All right, the, the, yeah, sure you're saved by grace, but if it was real grace, it would have turned you into carbon copies of us. Thank God this never happens in the church anymore. The fine print, all these outward marks of being an observant Jew on top of faith in Jesus Christ, on top of baptism and entering into the life of the church. 
And remember, the Pharisees, they had 613 rules. They added rules to the law of Moses to build a hedge of protection around the law so that even if you broke one of those rules, you were saved from actually breaking God's law. So we're now imposing some huge, massive body of rules and regulations upon people who were told, faith, grace, set you free. And then they come along, ka-chung. Oh, I forgot to tell you, all of this as well. Yes, these people were zealous, but so was Paul when he was persecuting the church. When he was on his way to Damascus to bring Christians back in chains, their zeal was dangerous. This is part of the danger to the church. First of all, because their insistence on law-keeping, keeping not only the moral law, don't steal, don't kill, love your enemies, this sort of thing, but the ceremonial law, it flew in the face of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Remember when he quoted the prophet Joel, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As well as flying in the face of the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. Back in Acts 13, just a couple chapters ago. Remember this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All the stuff that all your law-keeping could not free you from because it was just dragging you down with the heavy weight, the heavy yoke of the law, Jesus frees you by faith. Also because if it was necessary to follow the Jewish ceremonial law from circumcision to dietary rules to feast and fast days and all of this stuff, that means Paul and Barnabas were false teachers. Therefore, the majority of the New Testament written by Paul can't be trusted. And Peter, of course, then becomes an illegitimate leader in the church. What's more, Christ's death and resurrection didn't really change anything and didn't really accomplish anything. Therefore, we're still in our sins. So yeah, it's a little dangerous. And they approach it as dangerous. It starts off with a pretty politic way to approach. We're going to talk about it. We're going to discuss it. Galatians, the book of the Bible uh, that Paul wrote probably first, was written just a little while after the events of Acts 15. And there, Paul is less patient and much less politic with them. Despite the resolution we see in this chapter, this false, this false teaching, this false doctrine, this false gospel continues to get a foothold and spread throughout Galatia. It's going into cities we were just reading about last week, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and people are beginning to teach these same things, and Paul calls it what it is, dangerous heresy, and says anyone who preaches this other gospel, even if it was me, even if an angel came from heaven and did it, let that one be damned, condemned eternally, anathema. And so we approach this with solemnity. What happens here is really the first ecumenical council. This sets a, a pattern that will be repeated for centuries in the church. When there is a big dispute, a disagreement is threatening to tear the church asunder, a council is called. And here, in the year A.D. 48, we see this church council called in Jerusalem, which makes perfect sense, the center of Christianity at the time, to discuss under what conditions Gentiles should be allowed to enter the church. We kind of have the minutes from the meeting here, in the scriptures, what happened was a general meet-and-greet kind of thing. A report from those who had been doing the mission to the Gentiles. A meeting of just the leaders, it seems like perhaps kind of a closed-session type thing. 
And then the apostles and elders convened before the whole assembly. All the church that could gather together, gathered together here. This was not done in secret. It was done out in the open. There are essentially two sides. There's the Pharisee Christians. They're insisting at all the elements of the Old Testament law, especially circumcision as the initiation rite of the Old Covenant, be held to. And then Peter, on the other side, standing with Paul and Barnabas, who saw no reason to erect extra hurdles to be cleared, extra hoops to be jumped through, in order for for one-time adherence to mystery religions and pagan temples to come out of the darkness and into the light, they didn't think we should make that as hard as possible. Once again, for the third time perhaps in this book of Acts, the church is in danger of splitting. Now recognize it's been 10 years since the whole thing with Cornelius. You remember that? The vision of the sheet coming down from heaven, all the unclean and clean animals, and, and God says, or the voice from heaven says, rise, kill, and eat, to show that, that now th- there's a new paradigm. It's been 10 years, and they're still discussing it, and here now it comes to a head in a major way. David Garland says of this chapter, this incident appears in the center of Acts and serves as a fulcrum that looks back on the movement of the Christian witness beyond Jerusalem and forward to Paul's continuing mission leading to Rome. Notice that unlike some of the uh, councils that will follow, this is not some obscure group doing something weird that has to kind of be tempered or squashed or dealt with. No, this is the leaders of the church who are bringing the gospel out to the, to the Gentiles. Peter, the rock, he'd begun the mission to the Gentiles. Barnabas, one of the most prominent men of the church in Jerusalem, now one of the first missionaries along with the apostle Paul, the scholar and preacher. People teaching wonky stuff are often just disconnected from the rest of the church. And when anyone challenges them, they isolate themselves further and say, no, 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 we're right, you're wrong. Very much a cult reaction. That's not what happens here. They don't, they don't shut themselves off and say, no, 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 we're the ones. No, they say, let's talk about it. Let's open the scriptures together. Let's discuss this and pray about it and discuss it, they do. We have a good deal of what they said written down, but all of this comes after the, the little clause, after much discussion. So there's an awful lot that wasn't written down. Much discussion, or some translations even say after much debate. There's discussion, there's debate. This is, this is something that is open for discussion because the church is not the kind of place where one person comes in and says, here's what should happen. Peter doesn't say, I'm the rock on which Christ is building his church. What I say goes. Here's what you do. There's discussion. If, there, if, if Peter really was the first pope, as some have claimed, he could have spoke ex cathedra, out of his own throne. And it had a papal bull. This is, this is now doctrine. He's, he's not even the moderator of this thing. He's not even the one in charge. It's James. Much discussion, by the way, is not just, okay, let me hear your side. Let me hear your side. Hmm. Okay, here's my decision. Now, much discussion probably means that both sides have to be heard many times. That often happens when a lot of motions are up and there is a contentious issue. And people say, oh, we're wasting time. We're saying the same stuff. Let's just, I call the question. Bring it to a vote. Eh, they didn't have Robert's rules yet. Nobody called the question. There was much discussion. Finally, Peter stands up to speak. He's going to bring one perspective. He says, Paul and Barnabas 
had gone out and simply preached the gospel. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. No additional rites and rituals, no ceremonial laws, no no dietary regulations, no cleanliness codes. And in response to that, God had poured out his Holy Spirit on them just as he poured it out on us at the day of Pentecost. Therefore, he says in verse 9, God made no distinction between us and them. Neither should we. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. We remember back to that day on the roof when the voice came from heaven and said to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. That is the mistake the Pharisees are making here. Those people that God has, he's cleansed their hearts, he's washed them and made them new creations. They're saved, and we're saying, no, 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 you still have to do some stuff before you're right, at least in our eyes. So sadly ironic that those Pharisees obsessed with the law did not understand the primary function of the law. What is the law for? Well, in Galatians 3, Paul will explain it. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's the context of that famous passage, by the way, Galatians 3.28. It has to do with one thing, and that is how you come into the church. Do you have to become a Jew and come in? Or does God look out and say, either you are washed in the blood or you are not? It's the latter. And then he says, how dare we put on their shoulders a heavy yoke that we couldn't bear and our forefathers couldn't bear? How is that fair? Yoke was a common rabbinical rabbinical term referring to the law. And for these Gentiles, it would be unbearable. In fact, it says here that it was unbearable for even even those who knew it from their, their earliest memory. Again, from Galatians, Galatians 6.13, Paul writes, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Jesus, on the other hand, had promised not a heavy yoke that would weigh you down and hunch you over with a million rules, but a yoke that was easy and light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Have you been part of human religion? Have you been in a, a, a church or, or maybe not even in a church, just in a setting where it was just do this, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And it was just weighing you down. Jesus says, I'll take that. I'll put that on my shoulders. I'll die with it on the cross and do away with your sins. And then you take my yoke, which is easy and light. A yoke that says love one another. It says do in remembrance of me. Do unto others as you do unto, as you'd have them do unto you. Paul calls this in Galatians 5, the law, a yoke of slavery. Then in verse 11, I think we get to really the core of what Peter has to say. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they are. I want you to not miss something here. You'd expect him to say, But we believe that they're saved by grace just as we are. Which implies still they're being made like us. So he flips the whole thing on his head. Now we believe we are saved by grace 
just like them. I can flip it backwards, and it won't change the meaning. We're made like them, they're made like whatever. We're all made clean in the blood of the Lamb. We're all washed and saved by Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Paul and Barnabas stand up. They start telling stories from the road. If you've ever seen missionaries, you know this is either the best or worst part of the presentation, depending on the slideshow and how deep they get into different aspects of things and their charisma. Paul and Barnabas had them in the palm of their hand. It says the assembly was silent. Everyone listened as they shared all the stuff we've been reading about that happened. The miracles. All the people coming to faith. How amazing it was. And the the obvious conclusion to draw from what Peter and Paul and Barnabas have been saying is that in the church, we cannot have all these extra litmus tests of fellowship, things that Scripture never makes condition of salvation. That if God doesn't require it, we can't require it. And yet somehow, in the church, we often emphasize those things over what the Scriptures do require. I remember I got a call years ago but a guy, he said, hi, I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm a, I'm a believer. I already have a church. Don't get your hopes up. But I know somebody who needs one. She's a new believer. She's got kids, blah, blah, blah. i got to ask you some questions. I thought, okay, he's going to ask what programs we have for the kids. He's going to ask about our doctrine, what we teach, etc. Uh, and he starts just going through all of these different items of, of cultural significance, yes. But he starts asking me about global warming. He starts asking me about what the church thinks about this legislation or that. He starts, and you know what? He got through about 22 questions, and he never once got to what do you teach about the cross? He never once got to what do you teach about the repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus? He was touching on important things and things that Christians, I think, in their, in their lives and their vocation as citizens ought to engage with, but he was focusing on these litmus tests. I'm trying to figure out if your church is good enough for these people. And it was all litmus tests that Scripture does not make conditions of salvation. And I remember thinking, man, I, I don't know if we want these people to come here because I'm sure you're going to find something that's wrong with us immediately. Never heard from him again, never saw anybody again. But that is often how we all approach our faith. We have all these things we've hung on it, we've attached to it. We have all these extra accessories And they become the main focus more often than not if we let them. But the gospel brings freedom. Freedom from sin as well as freedom from the kind of extra rules and requirements that human religion multiplies and which Scripture does not require. Reminds me of the idea of the poll tax. I remember sitting in whatever it was, 8th grade history class, and being told about the poll tax, which was used to make sure that certain people weren't able to vote because they wouldn't be able to afford to vote. If you were poor, particularly if you lived in minority neighborhoods and things where they were focusing on people and saying, well, have to make it legal to vote, but how can we keep people at bay? Oh, let's make them have to pay a certain amount. Socioeconomic trends tell us that will disproportionately affect these people more than these people. And I remember thinking, man, I'm glad the Civil War happened, so that couldn't be legal anymore. Sometime in the 1860s, they struck that down, right? And I was told, no, it was the 24th Amendment, passed in 1964. 
when my parents were having their eighth grade history class, right? That blew my mind. The idea of adding this extra thing to get through. The 24th Amendment said, no, you only need to be a citizen registered to vote, not a landowner, not someone with extra money to throw around, not a third generation voter. There's one condition, and if that's met, that's that. That's what they're doing here at the Jerusalem Council. Now, Peter, I think he recognized that he was partial. Everyone knew that he was, and so he speaks his piece. He sits down. He doesn't make the final ultimate ruling. That comes from James. We mentioned some weeks ago that Jesus' brother James had assumed leadership in the Jerusalem church when Peter had shifted his focus more to missions. We weren't told exactly how it happened, but ultimately what we know about James is that he's the perfect guy to make this call because he's got a foot in both camps. Because this guy is definitely pro-Jewish law. What we know about him is he actually even tended toward legalism when he wasn't careful. And he shows immediately how, how he's affiliated when he says, it's just like Peter said, only he doesn't say Peter. He calls him Simon, only he doesn't say Simon. He calls him by the Hebraic version, Simeon, Shimeon. It's like Shimeon said. And he, and he starts connecting with these people who might have an objection to the gentilization of their faith. He connects with them and says, listen, we've got to go back to the Word. We've got to go back to what God is doing and what God has promised to do. He shows that, that God accepts Gentiles as, quote, a people for His name, meaning for His glory. Because he knew that requiring full keeping of the law would mean that these new Christians, these new Gentile Christians, would no longer be able to be part of their Gentile communities. Meaning the spread of the gospel, which was going viral, would come to a halt. And the church would no longer be more and more Gentile. It would go back to being a subsect of Judaism. Seems to be what the Pharisees wanted. But he also knew that if they completely disregarded the Jewish law, they'd not have fellowship with many of the Jewish Christians who were still living by the law, meaning that then there would be a split and we'd have two different churches. And that's not what Jesus came to do either. Read the book of Ephesians. Out of two people, he makes one. If they ate blood and meat sacrificed to idols, animals that have been strangled, that sort of thing. So he offers a solution. And notice that Paul and Barnabas share their experience, as does Peter. James goes to the scriptures. So we have both a testimony of what's been going on in the life of the church and the word of God, which is eternal and inerrant. And in verse 16 through 18, we see that he, he goes to the book of Amos, the prophet Amos. And if you know anything about Amos, you know it's mostly judgment oracles. There's very little that's about hope or promise, but that's where he zooms in. After this, I'll return, says the Lord. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins. I'll restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What could anyone say back to that? You see, James loves his cultural identity, and he should because it's cool. He loves his religious identity as a Jew who follows Jesus. He loves the history that his people have with Yahweh, the true God, who created heaven and earth. He's proud of it, like Alice was saying, I think, in that not sinful way of being proud. But he realizes that from the beginning, God intended to include Gentiles among his people. That he's going to rebuild the fallen tent of David with all peoples from all nations, tribes, and tongues. And so the conclusion that he draws is 
we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. After all that, that's what he says. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. On one hand, you're like, duh! Why would you make it difficult to turn to God? On the other hand, you have to stop and ask the question, how do we square that with Jesus' teaching about the narrow road? The the narrow road, not the wide one. About about building your house on the rock rather than going the easy way and, and building it on the sand. Wouldn't we want to say, well, let's make it easy for them. Build it on the sand. Go ahead. Take the wide road. It's luxurious, like Elaine said, right? The gospel itself is the stumbling block. We're told that stumbling block to those who, look at it, it's foolish. It's, it's messed up in their minds. This guy died and took my sins, and he's God. And it's a stumbling block. That word skandalon in Greek, where we get our word like scandalous, that word literally means a snare, like a trap for an animal. It's the part of the trap that trips them. You could translate it tripping stick. It, it knocks you over and grabs you. You're like Gilligan's Island, like yoink, and grabs you up. That's what the gospel is. It's, it's a stumbling block, but it's the only stumbling block that we should permit. We don't want to add additional stumbling blocks in front of it or after it as asterisks in fine print. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit and the will of the Father drawing us to the Son can we clear that stumbling block. But once someone has come to faith, it makes no sense to try and make things more difficult for them. In a way, these pharisaical Christians in this particular sect, they were like frat bros who were like, ooh, let's haze those fresh fish, rather than like those who would come around them and say, thank God you found Jesus and came to faith. Thank God you're here. You're saved. Jesus commands us to lift up one another, to bear one another's burdens, not to add to them. There's so many different things that we have added over the years. Your view of this or that, science gets brought into it. What is your understanding of the age of the earth? You've got to be able to check that list. What about political affiliation? Are you with us or against us? Well, whoever is not against us is for us. There's so many others we could say, but the question here is whether or not James is offering up a compromise. That's often the debate. Is this a compromise or not? So what if it is? Many people say, a compromise means nobody's happy, right? Compromise means that everybody has to give up so much, and then at the end of the day, everyone's miserable. Well, that's the worldly way of looking at it. It's a selfish way of looking at it. The Christian way would say everyone is submitting to one another in love and willing to give up something. That the the Gentiles are willing to give up meat sacrifice to idols, the drinking of blood, and a lot of stuff that would have been normal to them. Those in the Jewish camp were giving up, uh, demanding that everyone keep the law in their particular way. And there's great wisdom in the additional prohibitions that are made. Paul will later write, hey, we know an idol is nothing. So ultimately, end of the day, you eat meat sacrifice to idols. If it's not sin to you, you're not making anyone stumble, don't worry about it. We know an idol has no real existence, for there is one God. That's 1 Corinthians 8. But those who have a history of idol worship, for those people who have a former association, they couldn't just dabble with these things. Any more than a recovering alcoholic can be like, I just have a few drinks, no big deal. No, he was protecting them from falling back into old patterns. Sexual immorality, however, which is the other thing he tells them to avoid, was not a cultural concern, not contingent on anyone's background. 
Rather, it's an eternal standard based in God's holy word from Genesis chapter 1 on. But many of these Gentiles came from a background where sexual gratification was just wantonly sought, carnal pleasure indulged until their consciences were seared and they no longer could tell right from wrong. Even the pagan temple rituals involved all sorts of things that I'm certainly not going to describe on Mother's Day. And that's when they were going to church in the Gentile culture, essentially. This is a reminder that while the ceremonial laws no longer bind us, God's moral law will not be overturned. And so there is a standard, a standard of purity, of holiness. Today there's a common kind of pseudo-clever tactic used to, to dismiss the Bible, to confuse the ceremonial law with the moral law. The one that was obsolete because Christ came and fulfilled it, and the one that is still binding us. Well, you say that this is wrong, and yet I see that you eat shellfish. And you're wearing a cotton polyester blend t-shirt. So you're a hypocrite. Jesus said, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. The ceremonial law is no longer binding. But I, I want to say this. At the end of the day, even though it looks like a compromise, the spirit of St. James' ruling here is no compromise at all. The Gentiles may remain Gentiles, yes, but they may not remain idolaters, adulterers, or fornicators. Not if they want to follow Jesus. So James here reaffirms that grace alone, by faith alone, is the only requirement for salvation, and yet he, he requires holiness. He, he doesn't just commend it, he commands it. You must be holy. And you know, from outside the church, the word holiness, the very idea sounds very, very mean and puritanical and imposing rules upon people. It's something that has been used to even oppress people and persecute people. A way of excluding and demanding they follow endless lists of, of ceremonial requirements. But for those who are in Christ, who have been freed from sin, the notion of holiness is a beautiful one. It reminds us that God has given us a new heart and is now making us a new creation. We are saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It comes with good works, deeds of love and mercy, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, caring for those around us, forgiving, loving our enemies, putting to death that in us which goes counter to Christ's desires for us being unpolluted by the world. I think it's not an accident that it's James who wrote a book on this. It's called the Book of James. You may have heard of it. In which he says, if, if you have faith, but it's without works, it's dead. If all it is is something on your tongue and not something in your heart and something in your life, it's worthless. If the apostles were gathered together today regarding two disparate groups of people who were threatening to tear a church apart, it wouldn't be this same dispute. It'd be something different. Maybe it would be liberal and conservative Christians. Maybe it'd be Pentecostals and Charismatics on one side and non-Charismatics on the other. They're speaking in tongues and prophesying and they're saying, no, 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 it all ended with the close of the canon. Maybe it would be church models, traditional versus contemporary or innovative. And there would undoubtedly be different warnings given in the final ruling. But the freedom in Christ would still rule the day just as it did. And the warnings that James gives still apply today just as much as they did back then. We might say, wait a minute, I don't remember the last time I ate anything strangled, anything sacrificed to an idol. 
I almost never just drink me up a nice glass of blood. But he's talking about idolatry here. Idolatry is something that we don't do overtly anymore, so we think we're sophisticated. We don't bow down, most of us, before a, a little wooden or stone guy and worship it. It happens today, but we think of it as very separate from our world in our lives, and yet it can happen in the heart. Just like true worship of God can't just be in your mouth, but must be in the heart. Making the sign of the cross to many traditions is so very valuable that where they've been persecuted and where they've been oppressed and not allowed to do it openly, they'll do it inside their mouth with their tongue and say to themselves, I'm still making the sign of the cross to seal myself. I'm still doing this and worshiping in my heart. In the same way, we still can worship idols in our hearts secretly. Bowing down maybe is not acceptable in a physical posture, but inwardly we genuflect to anything from a smartphone to a 401k to a team logo or a sports car or my own carnal gratification or my own fame and success or whatever it might be. And even perhaps more so, this warning against sexual immorality applies today. We balk when we read about the, the situation in Corinth where a man had his father... Oh, good grief. There is that Mother's Day curse again. Man having his father's wife and the whole church says, we approve, we're, or at least we're going to turn a blind eye. We balk at that. But today, we're getting pretty close in the evangelical church to a similar situation. Paul says, avoid that. In fact, he says to those in Corinth, flee from that stuff. Like your mama taught you. There, I saved it. At the end of the day here, the whole council agrees. They agree that it's a wise and fair solution to the problem. Yes, tell them that they don't have to become Jews, but tell them they have to stop being idolaters. They have to stop with the immorality and that together we can become one church. And so they take it upon themselves to communicate their decision in the heart of this controversy to those people mostly affected by it. They send the letter out to Antioch, and from there out even further. And the letter was from the entire council, speaking with one voice how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. They said there were some who went out troubling you and unsettling your minds, and that's not what Christianity is about. It's not supposed to trouble you and unsettle your mind. It's supposed to comfort you and settle your mind. And so they say it, is, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to tell you this, to put no further requirements upon you, to give you no greater burden than simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ and avoiding temptation. Didn't say it just seems good to us. That's not enough. And our men's group is right now reading the book of Judges together. They did what seemed good to them, what was right in their own hearts. Didn't work out well. They say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The Spirit led them. The Scriptures uh, uh, showed the confirmation that this was what God would have. And so they wrote the letter saying, you are free from having to do all this stuff in the fine print. You're free from all these extra litmus tests, all these asterisks that have been placed next to the Gospel. You are free from them. And the result was great joy among the Christians in Antioch and the surrounding area. I have to imagine from the point of view of those Gentile believers, the great rejoicing began when they read the first word of the letter. Adolfoi means brothers and sisters. A reminder, we are one family. 
You don't have to change into a different kind of culture. You don't have to drop all the, everything that you're about. Simply what you're doing is following Jesus. Repenting of your sins and wherever you are, in whatever world you live in, following Him. This is what we see in the Scriptures. And the temptation continues to be, no, 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 no. If the grace is really grace, it'll make you look just like me. It'll make your church act just like my church. It'll make it so that I have to go out city to city and correct everybody, implying that I was sent by the, the leaders of the church, the leader of the church, Christ himself, to go out and tell you you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. Often, just like in those early days, there are even churches where there will be racial or national minorities that come in, and a lot of people say, oh, that's great, that's good. I love this. This is so exciting until there are more and more and more and the culture starts to change and then suddenly, ooh, backpedal. In the church, we can't allow that. We have to be a place, as we read in the book of Revelation, where there is a great multitude gathered around the throne of every nation, tribe, and tongue. An absolute kaleidoscope of people from a background of every culture, from every single place on earth, Worshiping one Savior. That's what the church looks like. The one thing they have in common. Faith in Jesus. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The Holy Spirit has filled them. And they are now new creations. Let's strive for that. Not only in our church, but in our individual lives. Not to add litmus tests. Not to add asterisks. But to say, if you are with Jesus, you are with me. And let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Jerusalem Council, which simultaneously reminds us that there is truth, there is right and wrong, there is holiness that we must seek, but Lord, that there are so many different backgrounds, there are so many different cultures out of which you have raised up your own, made a people for your own name, and Lord, we, we do a great disservice, not only to you and to the church, but to ourselves, if we try and make everyone the same. Lord, may we be the kind of Christians like Paul and Barnabas who went out and preached a simple gospel. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. Not adding to it, not using it as a vehicle for a political agenda or a cultural agenda or anything else. Only wanting to see people come to faith. Only wanting to see the lost found, the blind seeing, and those who are dead in their sins raised to new life. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.